from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. I do believe that when you care about something, you will defend it. And you will do anything you can to protect it, to love it, to tend it. So not only from your own authentic sense of self, but also for the rest of the Earth community. And that's why I'm committed to this work. Jennifer Juniper Owens is the co-founder of Bridge Counseling and Wellness, an integrative mental health and holistic therapy center in Louisville, Kentucky. A licensed clinical social worker, Juniper is also certified as an ecotherapist in the state of Kentucky. She employs nature connection, body psychotherapy, and spiritual development in her therapeutic work, helping individuals work with trauma, life transitions, and anxiety issues. I'm your host, Kyle Kramer, the executive director of the Earth and Spirit Center. Juniper joined me and Parker Bowling, a fellow Earth and Spirit Center staff member, for a conversation on how our deep connection to the rest of the natural world can help us through our own individual struggles and through the collective trauma we're experiencing with the coronavirus. We pulled back the lens to reflect on what makes for lasting social and environmental change. Well, Juniper, welcome to the Earth and Spirit podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here with you all. Well, we love your concept of rewilding mental health and how you're weaving your social work background together with nature-based healing modalities. So I'd love for you to tell Parker and me a little bit more about what rewilding health is, what it means, and how you were inspired to, to make that move and, and what it looks like in terms of how it manifests in your practice and, and also in your own life. Yes, well, um, the concept is an evolving concept, and I kind of want to share my personal healing story and what brought me to the concept of rewilding and nature-based healing work in a, in a therapeutic context. So I think it was around maybe 20 or 21, I started developing out of the blue, pretty debilitating panic attacks. And uh, those panic attacks um, morphed into some phobias and some agoraphobia. And I was working as a massage therapist at the time and had to quit my job. It was so debilitating. And it, it moved into a space that I couldn't go to the grocery store and Driving my kids to soccer practice became like climbing Mount Everest. Um, as many people that experienced panic attacks might understand where I was coming from. And I had a history with therapy, and I was doing some talk therapy, but it was very slow. I was still just experiencing lots of panic attacks. And um, probably a few years in, I was uh, at the time almost finished with my social work degree when I went back to school. I started increasing my time outdoors, which was scary for a person with panic attacks because you might be by yourself. What happens if I have a panic attack? But I almost, and to use a therapeutic or psychological term, was doing exposures on myself, I think. Didn't really know what I was doing at the time. But I was slowly letting myself do small hikes alone. And then those small hikes turned into longer hikes. And um, simultaneously, I noticed that my anxiety was just getting better. And that eventually evolved into a solo backpacking trip 
Was it, if I could interrupt, was yeah. that alongside more conventional therapy mm-hmm. or was that your therapy? So this was alongside, and I wasn't actually considering it as a therapy at the time. I was, I just love being outside and I, I enjoy athletics. And so I was just trying to have fun. I was doing um, nutritional therapy, talk therapy, ex- different types of exercise, mindfulness, and I think they all played a role. So I don't want to diminish those, but yeah. I was just more trying to have fun. And then all of a sudden I was like, I think something's happening here. And when I did the solo backpacking trip, it was my very first time ever being alone in a, in a camping environment by myself. And when I did, it was scary. But when I finished that trip, I don't think I had a panic attack again after that. Mm-hmm. It just, um, and it was not like a sudden thing. It was slow, but that kind of sealed the deal for me that, um, I think this nature thing might have something to it, right? Some healing properties. So that's kind of, in short, my journey to exploring nature-based healing modalities. And So I'm sorry to interrupt, but this word rewilding is intriguing to me. What does it mean? Where did it come from? How have you adopted it into some connection with mental health? So I first became introduced to the rewilding concept, the biological conservation concept, when I read about the reintroduction of the gray wolf in Yellowstone in 1955. And it's just a beautiful concept that has just struck me with the complexity and the simplicity of it. Is this how reintroducing wolves changed the course of rivers and entirely transformed the ecosystem? Yeah, yeah, so what I understand story. of the process, the biological conservation process of rewilding is that you, um, one of the ideas is introducing an apex predator. And then the idea is that when the apex predator comes back into the ecosystem, that it produces what is called a trophic cascade, which is just kind of like an effect tumbling from the top of the food chain all the way to the bottom. So the idea is, is that when gray wolves were absent, then the elk and the deer population arose, um, and then they overgrazed. And so what happens when the, the wolves come back is that all of a sudden the deers are avoiding the hunting, you know, being hunted in certain areas, so they're not grazing. All of a sudden the vegetation comes back. All of a sudden songbirds come back. And then um, it, it goes down and down and down all the way to, I think that beavers were absent in some of these areas, and all of a sudden willow and vegetation, and then birds and insects come back. Beavers are building their habitat, which creates habitat for other animals. Um, the soil's not eroding, right? There's less soil erosion, so the riverbanks are more stable. So it's just the most amazing process, and it really got me thinking that— I'm waiting for you to say you're going to yeah. introduce apex predators into the mental health system. Well, you know, I've been They're trying to there. theorize, <laughs> right? Like, I really like the idea of letting nature and letting diversity happen on its own. My favorite part about the concept is that, you know, in traditional, my sister's a biologist, so she might kill me when I say this, but it's it's like management feels very like management. It just feels um, like we're controlling and that the earth is for us to save and to manage. And I don't know that that strikes a chord with me. It, um, so does rewilding end up meaning kind of allowing this... Um, this lack of control to be a factor in in the mental health equation? is uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that Got looks it. like specifically. So I guess when I'm thinking of diversity, so we know that a nice ecosystem, we want lots of diversity 
And when I think of the mental health care system delivery right now, it feels like monoculture or monocropping. We have talk therapy and medication management, and most usually it's just medication management. And because of my history with integrative mental health and my own personal history in which I shared, I recognize that just one thing isn't enough. If it was, we wouldn't need mental health care, right? And so the idea started to spark um, through my work in nature of like what would create more biodiversity in our mental health. So not just healthcare delivery system, but also our own concepts and practices for mental health. Okay, whether or not we're out in the woods, rewilding entails just this broader array of, of tools, which, which can include nature therapy, but isn't limited to it. Is that right? Yeah. As I said, it's still kind of evolving. Um, So I have one concept that I think I could use as an example. Um, Something I've noticed with some of my time outdoors is that uh, my mind wanders. And so like we have lots of practices that require specific focus for the mind, Um, reading, meditation, TV, and most of the things are focused, but just wandering with your mind Um, What I found when I allowed my mind to do that is I started understanding things about myself and nature and just it felt really healthy. And then all of a sudden when that started happening, it had a trophic effect, right? I'm starting to be more imaginative and creative and make up songs in my head and learn, I wonder what that Robin's thinking. And it just one after the other. Does that make sense? So the idea is, is if we bring in some of these core foundational practices and I think it's not just for the event individual, but community for mental health. We need to be not just focusing on individual, but also community mental health care, community healing, spiritual healing, and that kind of stuff. If that makes any sense at all to you. Yeah, definitely. And I can imagine the folks listening um, are probably, how do we begin to integrate this rewilding into our own mental health, into our own sense of spirituality? And so One thing I wanted to ask you about as someone who's participated in some of your courses is more about your Shinrin Yoku or forest bathing practice. Uh, I was wondering if you could just explain to us and our listeners a bit about what it is and also what inspired you to not only begin practicing it and offering it for others, but to practice it yourself. Absolutely. Forest bathing is my favorite and I love to talk about it. And I actually consider forest bathing a rewilding of sorts for our minds and bodies. So it's one practice and who knows the effects that it has. Um, So I don't know, I was trying to think about this. I actually don't know how I was introduced to forest bathing or where I first saw it. But when I saw and read about the Shinrin Yoku in Japan, it just spoke to me. I was like, oh, that's that's what I want to do. And just I to clarify that. so that we don't get an explicit rating on this on this podcast, um, <laughs> forest bathing is not going naked into the woods, right? Well, or at least not, not it's necessarily. Op- that's also clothing optional. But Clo- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if that's the way. So we are going to get bathed. the explicit rating on this <laughs> podcast. So uh, Shinrin Yoku is translated, is roughly translated as bathing in the forest atmosphere with all of your senses. So you're essentially like, there's practices called sound baths where you're taking a bath with all of your senses in the forest. And that's what the word, the the practice translates to the Japanese practice. Uh, And it is essentially that here in the West, some people aren't used to just spending hours in the forest bathing in their senses. So the guide, which is me would help provide small practices or what we call invitations 
to start that process, but really it's just about being. There's no goal. There's no um, rules. You're being in the forest. Very, it's very embodied practice. And I know that you've experienced it, and I'm curious if that's what you noticed. Yeah, the, the thing I, I remember most distinctly of being in that forest bathing experience is we were in the middle of the Louisville Nature Center, which is like five minutes from my house, a couple minutes from where we're recording this, and in quite a busy part of the city with roads all around. But as we stepped into the, the woods, the first thing that struck me was before even entering into the woods, we paused and asked for an invitation into that space. And there was this sense of intentionality behind it, that as humans, we weren't just going to stomp on this ground and keep moving forward, but we were going to pause and see, are we welcome in this space and take a time. It would offer me was this sense of reflection of how am I going to be in this space? What is my presence? What impact is it having on other beings in this, in this environment, in this ecosystem? And I guess all that to say, there's just this intentionality behind the practice that really helped me both open my senses in the immediate experience of it. But ever since that, that one practice together, it's helped me bring this sense of rewilding mental health into my own practice, both personally and as a clinician of starting to take a step back and asking what, what is our intention behind this? And I think that's for me what that bringing that all of our attention to our senses in the natural world allows us to have. And I think that, you know, most American or the average American spends more than 90% of their lives indoors or in cars. And uh, there's a term that I came across called species isolation. And um, I'm very curious about that, but I think we all can maybe get a sense of understanding. So for me, the intention is the relationship. And that's actually a central component to eco-psychology is the relationship between humans and the other than human world. And so Part of why forest bathing to me is such a beautiful practice is because when you're opening with your senses, you're experiencing the forest in all these different ways. For example, plants, they move differently than we do. They're slow movers. Um, they have a different quality. And so when you're moving slow, intentionally, you're listening, not just with your ears, but also your body, your proprioception, your sense of intuition, you can have a different relationship and experience. And I, when the first time I did it, I was hooked. I got a book, did it on my own, and I was like, oh, I've struggled with other practices like yoga and meditation. I wanted to love them, but they, and I do love them. But when I found forest bathing, I'm like, this is it. And what I've noticed with participants is I hear the same thing. Well, I really didn't like hiking, or I didn't feel like I could keep up, or, you know, what, and they were like, this is it. And, and yeah, for those who may think this is starting to veer off into woo-woo land, there's a lot of science behind this, too. I'm Absolutely. thinking about Suzanne uh, Samard and uh, Diana Beresford-Kroger, who talk a lot about just the, um, the fact that when you're in the woods, you are physically inhaling and absorbing various hormones and pheromones and you know, other, other substances that trees are, are actually emitting um, to your benefit. Yeah, there's a there's a word that's called phytoncides. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so there's like a whole organic biochemical compound in the air all around you that you're right. taking in. Um, but phytoncides are one of them, and it's it's almost like the essential oil that comes out of plants, but specifically conifers. And it's part of their natural defense system. So to help defend against pests and things like that, these phytoncides are emitted. But what's brilliant is that when we take those in, they help build our immune system. We have similar um, reactions to it. So uh, there's also a compound in dirt, which I can't say its scientific name, 
Um, it starts with MV, and it has been studied, unfortunately, in mice. Sorry, mice. Um, but it's having similar, if not greater, effects than Prozac in the human body. So it affects our body like Prozac, excuse me, which is an antidepressant. So um, there's, there's a lot of science behind it. And for those that aren't interested in science, if you experience it, you'll know. Well, and it stands to reason. I, I think the figure I recall is that 40% of our current pharmaceuticals were derived from rainforest, compounds found in the rainforest. So, I mean, it stands to reason that any forest is going to have some measure of beneficial substances that we're interacting with. Yeah, it's something to just follow up on the point you talked about species isolation, which I think that the word isolation triggered for me just the sense of how relevant that concept is today in the midst of COVID-19 and what is being called social distancing that we're trying to reframe is more of that physical distancing from one another for our own health and out of a sense of compassion. But with the sense of species loneliness, I think we can feel this because maybe in our day-to-day lives we're not seeing or interacting with humans as, as much as we used to. And some of our listeners might not be seeing anyone because they want to keep themselves safe or their family members safe. And so I was wondering if you just talk a bit more about that experience. And it's something that I've I've had the experience in my own um, Shinrin Yoku forest bathing practice and just time outdoors of opening up the senses to every other more than human being that's around you in, in the forest or even in your backyard or the park. As soon as you start to open up, that illusion of separateness or isolation completely falls away. And there's the sense of curiosity that opens up to being in the midst of relationship with others. So I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about that or if there's any practices you'd recommend, even for, for folks who might be at home right now and just have access to their backyard, or maybe you can just open up a window. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, and, and honestly, from what you described, I am hearing that in my personal practice of isolation. It's also something that comes along with depression. And so I almost immediately go to let's expand our relational sense to other than humans. And of course, human relationships are vitally important. And that's something that we, but when you expand your relationship, even with your own self and your body, our body is of earth, right? And so you can, um, I guess, alleviate or address that sense of loneliness. So some practices that are good for that. Uh, one that I've been participating in is, uh, say you have an open window on your balcony, stoop, backyard, is getting to know the birds because birds tend to be in most environmental area, you know, suburban, urban, city areas. And it's more than just getting to know the birds, but maybe distinguishing different sounds, maybe even viewing a specific bird. It doesn't have to be birds, but that's a great one to start with. That's who I, um, one option. And then maybe even getting to know an individual bird because sometimes we'll say, oh, that's a robin. Um, but all, there's lots of different differences between each robin. Like I have one in my yard right now that really likes my garden space because it's got some fresh tilled earth. And it's like, woo. And I'm, I'm getting to know because it has a little feather that's um, somehow misplaced. And this one's so sweet and like has a mellow tone and maybe some of the other robins. So, And then when you intimately pay attention and even start to interact, might I say interact with these other species, Uh, The sense of loneliness, for me at least, I never feel alone. I went, I mean, I feel the same way about trees, so relationships with trees are really important to me, and I, I just never feel, I feel like the roots are always under me, we're always connected.
think another good practice to share while we're talking about forest bathing is sit spot practice, which is a center stone practice in a lot of nature connection uh, circles. But sit spot is essentially where you sit in a spot. Um, but the idea is, is that you're sitting in the same spot. And so this also helps you to have some intimate relationship with one place on the land. So often because we're moving around a lot or indoors a lot, we don't really have an understanding of the land around us in the ways that maybe we once did. So the invitation is to find a spot and sit there for a year, every day or a few times a week if you can. And through all the seasons, when it's raining, snowing, um, when it's light, dark outside, and I did that in my spot, I actually kept for three years because I loved it so much. It's by a sycamore tree. And um, it is just amazing what happens when you come back to the same place over and over again. It reminds me of, of uh, Richard Powers' story, the, the overstory, where one plot device is that this farmer out in, uh, what was it, Iowa? Ido- Iowa, Idaho. Um, uh, somewhere in the Midwest had this lone um, chestnut tree, and he took a picture. He and then subsequent generations took a picture of that same tree from the same spot every single month for over, I think, 100 years. And they ended up having this flip book of this tree growing up through their, their the generations of their family. So they picked their spot, yeah. and they stuck with it for not just years, but generations. Yeah, I love that part of the book. It was really powerful. Mm-hmm. There's something beautiful, too. That tree was one of the only ones that survived the the blight. the blight. And so there's something about that consistency of showing up time and time again in the same place, the resiliency behind that. And I will share that for people that have attended and also my clients I work with, sit spot, usually the mo- one of the more powerful practices. And it's very accessible. So you don't have to be in the woods. A lot of people have sit spot on their front porch, like, in a busy urban area, Oak Street, right? Um, and then other people want to venture a little further out. My suggestion is for it to be close to where you are. So you can do it consistently, yeah. Because yeah. to do it consistently. And I have one of my colleagues was like, my neighbors think I'm crazy when I'm out there in the rain with a tarp in my spot. But he was like, it's the most beautiful, you know, enchanting experience. A lot of grief comes up too. And so I know right now people might be experiencing um, different various levels of grief. And Having the earth or trees or the animals or spirit, whatever your worldview is, hold some of that for you. As I know a lot of people don't want to bother or um, put too much on their loved ones, especially if we're in a house with them 24-7 for the last however many months. So um, I found some beautiful releases in the earth and the trees and and that relationship. They can hold it. So that sit spot could be powerful right now. So Juniper... Here we are in Louisville, Kentucky, and Louisville's a pretty progressive city in its in its various ways. Uh, Kentucky as a whole, um, perhaps not quite so much. And so I'm wondering, it's it's one thing to do the kind of work that you're doing out on the progressive coasts. It's something very different to do it here in the middle of the country, where there's a much kind of broader spectrum that swings far left and far right. So I'm wondering how your work's been received here. Uh, in Louisville, but especially in the state of Kentucky, whether you get sideways glances or whether this resonates with folks maybe across spectrums? It's a great question, and I've been contemplating that myself because I've been clinically practicing in the field with nature-based healing for over a year now. And I think it's a two-part. So 
Yes, most of my training has been on the West Coast or the East or Colorado, that area. The Republic of Boulder. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the, the two things that I've noticed that's the barrier here um, is one, the weather. For some reason, the, the being really, really hot, buggy, sticky, all the mosquitoes and ticks coming out, or too cold or rainy. I noticed that in this region, people are less apt to want to be outdoors, and it's less than perfect conditions. Which is about three weeks a year. Right, exactly. <laughs> we, it's like, yeah, exactly. And so um, that's been a challenge. And I've been trying to introduce the idea that there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing or like gear. I think it's actually, is it a Norwegian term for it? Yes. I, I've I heard remember it up the name. people from Minnesota and Wisconsin talking about, you know, there's, there's right. only inadequate clothing. Yeah. So we try to, I'm trying to make it really comfortable for people, make sure that we have some bug spray if that's what you need. But I, I've noticed that's a big barrier, actually. And I think the reason why it's more popular or even woven into therapeutic context is because people probably do that more. Maybe it's because of the weather or maybe it's because of the landscape scenery. But I noticed in some of the areas like in the West Coast, people uh, participate more in outdoor activities. Yeah, I can see that in the West. Uh, a little more surprising in the East because the East has wicked cold winters and wicked hot summers. Uh, I wonder is if it's just weather or if it's also uh, other factors. Right, and that brings me to the second. Okay. Well, they have mountains, and people tend to that live near mountains tend to be out more. I haven't read the exact research on it, but it's a, it's a guess. I'd like to read that. Uh, and then my second thought is that we tend to be a little more traditional in the way that we view mental health care and treatment. From my understanding, we in Kentucky, you mean? yes. Uh-huh. And I don't want to speak for everyone or other states, but I've noticed that people tend to view mental health care as either taking medicine or sitting on a couch in a room and you're going to talk about stuff. So talk therapy, which there's lots of other therapies besides talk therapy. But I think that that's the understanding of what you're going to get in a therapy session. And so I've noticed that when I try to introduce, so people are interested, they want to, but they don't necessarily feel comfortable or safe yet doing what you think is going to happen in a therapy session outdoors. I also think some of it is a lack of understanding maybe of the research behind it, but I think it's just more out of the box of what is expected. And I've noticed that with our colleagues as well. They don't really know how to refer. They don't, people don't know what's going to happen in an outdoor session. So I think there's a lot of unknowns. Well, I'm thinking yeah. maybe there's an agricultural analogy here insofar as Kentucky has a history of small mixed farms rather than monoculture, at least in, it, in, its, in its history. And so maybe Kentucky has a future of that that similarly varied approach to healthcare. Maybe we can get mm. beyond the healthcare monoculture that you'd spoken about earlier, just because we have this this landscape that lends itself to smaller, more diverse farms. Maybe ultimately it can lend itself to more diverse means of mental health care as well. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that all makes sense. And we're talking about accessibility. I think there's two levels of that. The first level is like you're talking about people's awareness of it and there might be hesitation because of the weather or not knowing the research, but then there's also that level of accessibility that people listening to this might be extremely interested in this work that you want to do, and yet there could be a barrier of um, having to pay out of pocket, that their insurance doesn't cover it. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about, I know as a clinical social worker, you have this commitment to social justice that's played out throughout our community. So how do you and your colleagues work to bring these services to people who are looking for them regardless of ability to pay? That is a great question, and it's also ever-evolving. 
Uh, there's two parts to this, too. In the one sense, that there's not a lot of training in this work, especially in our in my social work education. I wasn't trained on nature-based healing or outdoor work or any of these things that we're talking about. So as far as accessibility and that end, there's not a lot of clinicians trained. And I believe that people that are providing services, it's very effective if you're providing services in your community. So I think that accessibility could be increased if more people were trained and then worked in their community in ways that work for their community. Um, second is having green space that's accessible and safe, as we know is, is an issue, environmental justice issue. And we could go on and on about that. Um, and so some of the things that I'm specifically hoping to do and in, in progress is one, work with community members and train and talk to them about what this could look like in their communities and how could it be more accessible. So um, instead of me, myself and my team providing all the services, that just doesn't make sense and it's probably not as effective. How can we grow and enhance the ability for people to provide it in their communities the way that it works best? So that's one way. Even if they're not clinical social workers or licensed therapists? Are you going down that road as well? It could be. I'd, okay. I'd prefer li um, licensed therapists <laughs> to have the training or to be able to adapt it in ways that works for their style and community. Um, but also the ecotherapy uh, training and nature connection does not have to be done by a clinician and maybe can sometimes be more powerful because it's about helping uh, build that relationship with the other than human world. Right. I'm thinking pastors and you know other community leaders. That, Absolutely. That aren't mental health care professionals, but have all kinds of influence on their community members. Yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. So we have done a few things. We've created um, my cohort, and I created the East Coast Ecotherapy Alliance. And we're trying to build in the Southeast region what ecotherapy and, and um, expanding, as I discussed. And then also um, working on projects in order to include the social justice and environmental justice aspects that on my own I haven't been able to do myself. So working toward it, and also I'm really just more curious too of like what do people want and need from this? And I haven't been able to do any type of research or I guess interviewing process. There's another word for that. Evaluation? Uh, survey? Uh, yeah, surveys. It would be an excellent idea or hope to do a survey in the community and find out what are the barriers, what is the need for it? Do people want this in their life for part of their well-being? And I'd say even before you do the survey, throw it out there because they may not know they want or need it until they've experienced it. Yeah, that's a good point. So I know that you talked a bit about environmental justice in that last answer and also about rewilding our, our relationship to the natural world to our sense of belonging in the natural world, our sense of relationship with the more than human world. And so I wanted to zoom out a bit and, and talk a bit about your perspective on how social and environmental change happens. And while we're having this conversation, it's in the midst of COVID-19, but also in this larger sense of climate crisis and in this global moment where there are these massive movements that are amassing people of all ages, but particularly a younger generation around these actions of environmental justice, ecological justice, and all of its intersections with the social justice movements that have existed for, for generations. And so I'd be curious to get your perspective on how this type of change happens and also what a single person and maybe what a particularly uh, younger person who might be in their teens, 20s, 30s, what can they do to contribute to that sense of justice in the world? That's a beautiful 
and complicated question. The short answer is change can happen in various ways and various levels, all right, individual, community. From my theoretical and spiritual practice and background, what we've been talking about, I believe that change occurs, well, first on a personal level, obviously he's working as a healer and a clinician, um, and then almost similar to the butterfly effect, right? One flap of a butterfly's wings can, you know, cause a tornado, right? I, I do believe that. But for me, the center stone of change and my, from my perspective is helping rebuild these relationships uh, with humans and the other than human world in order to really make the change. The way I see it is you don't care about what you don't care about. And it's really hard to go and lobby and try to be an act like from what I found in my past as an activist is trying to convince people of what they're doing is horrible for the environment. Right. So the kind of the doom and gloom. Um, and, and there's places for that. That affects me and helps raise awareness for me. But for some people, it, it creates this sense of overwhelm. And so for me, it's about building those relationships. When you care about something, you can decide how and what changes you want to make. So for me, the more I spent tending to land, the more I noticed uh, pollution on the land, right, and plastic waste. And the more I started to think about my personal um, consumption of that, and then it kind of builds outwards. So that's, to me, where I hope I spend the rest of my life doing is help support building these relationships. Because I do believe that when you care about something, you will defend it. And you will do anything you can to protect it, to love it, to tend it. So not only from your own authentic sense of self, but also for the rest of the earth community. So that's my perspective on that. And that's why I'm committed to this work. And especially for young people. I've noticed that especially with all the movements that there's this idea that like young people will save us. And my generation are the one, generation X are the ones that got us into this because the most important thing we do is try to legalize weed. No, just joking. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm having two younger sons that are in that population, young adult as well. And just noticing how there's a tremendous amount of, in some sense, apathy and kind of like, well, we're screwed. We're in this situation. My advice to them, and maybe this could help others, is to really go into that grief and anger, kind of following Joanna Macy's work that reconnects spiral, of really going into the grief and the anger because what's connected to that grief and anger is like profound love and gratitude. And what's beautiful about that is that you wouldn't be angry or apathetic or sad if you didn't love something. And so being able to expand and um, into that grief and love at the same time, my hope is, is we'll continue to motivate and create uh, that passion that is going to be needed for the great changes that, that our earth is going to require for, for us to sustainably be living on it. You may have just answered this question, Juniper. You used the word hope. And I was going to ask, I know that hope is, is somewhat less fashionable these days in activist circles. And yet my own conviction, at least, is that it's difficult, if not impossible, to work without some semblance of hope. So I'm, I'm wondering if you would agree with that, if you do indeed have hope for the work that you're doing and the work that we could do collectively in terms of uh, ensuring a, a livable planet. And if you do have that hope, where where is it coming from? How How is it sustained for you? Well, I think it right, flowing right into what we were talking about at that space of 
incredible. Their words don't even describe the love and like the agape love, like the self, like the compassionate love that I personally have for every lit being on this universe, um, plant, animal, mineral, water. And so for me, that love drives hope. And I don't think I would be doing this if I didn't have hope. And I don't think we all, you know, would be doing some of the things that we have if we didn't have some hope. I believe in the human spirit. And I also think that with a paradigm shift, um, both individually and collectively as a, as a collective psyche, that, that we can um, make change and not even just make change, but also live into our true selves and sense of purpose, if that makes any sense at all. And I do think that a tr like that authentic self has right relationship and reciprocal relationship with. Interesting. So I, I heard two things there that, that I, I wanted to latch on to. One is that love is the source of hope. And if you have love, whatever you may say about hope, ultimately you actually have it. That's uh, my sense. And connection. I think I'm hearing you say that love is always rooted in a sense of, of intimate connection with others, but I love how you phrase the other than human or the, the more than human world. I feel like that is, that is a way we can go forward, connected in our grief, but also connected in our, our hope, because all of that is, is, is connected in our, in our love. So as, as we wind to a close here, Juniper, I often like to ask guests about three Polestar values or drivers for your work. And I th we may have already touched on all of them in various ways, but I'm wondering if, if you might be able to encapsulate for us three values that drive your work and that may be good takeaways for our listeners. The first that I want to name and that I think encapsulates some of the things we talked about is curiosity. And curiosity is really important to me and especially the work because we all have different experiences and different ways of being on this earth. And for me, if I have like a def definition or a pre-prescribed notion of how something should be, it's kind of almost like blinders. And so having a sense of openness and curiosity is really important. I think especially embarking on work that is, I don't want to say newer, but eco-psychology as a term wasn't even um, created until 1970s by Theodore Rozak. And so it is relatively new. And so uh, remaining curious to me is vitally important and also helps to allow for change and flow and flux. And which, as you know, right now, I mean, that's so there's a curiosity. What does this virus have to say to us right now? It's a living being. What's happening? What's going on? What, how are people responding? So that's helped me not be angry at the virus, for example, um, or, or amongst other things. Also, I, I think compassion, and in compassion is the love that I was speaking before, and then also um, relationship. I think we've kind of hit on those are important, not just in my life, but also in the work, eco-psychology work. And in compassion, uh, for me, one of the more important ones is self-compassion, especially as a mental health professional. A lot of the work that I do with people, uh, we first need to start there. Because if you think about the species isolation and that we've been kind of cut off or isolated from the land and the earth, think about what that does for ourselves. And especially as a woman, uh, 
I've been studying witch hunts lately, uh, which have been very fascinating, but there's this link to wild nature witch, you know? And so I was wondering, how has that colonized my own sense of self? And there is a disconnection. And I think that we tend to not view ourselves as important as compassion as all the other animals. So I was starting there. So I'm going to say self-compassion. So I think what I heard you say was wonderfully alliterative. Three C's, curiosity, compassion, including Mm self-compassion, and connection, which may be maybe another word for love, I'm not sure, but uh, I won't put that word in your mouth, but at least at least connection with other beings, especially in the more than human world. Yeah. Did I get those? Yes, the idea is connection with self, connection with community, and then connection with the planet, universe, cosmos. Yeah, like that feels complete. Oh, another C. <laughs> <laughs> so curiosity, compassion, and connection equals complete. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. The four C's. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, And just, I know we're winding down our time together in this conversation. And so I actually wanted to circle back a bit to Joanna Macy, who's someone you'd mentioned a couple times throughout our conversation. And I know you view her as an elder. She's a a Buddhist scholar and activist. She's also the root teacher of the work that reconnects, which I know has inspired a lot of your work with community members here of delving deeper into this psycho-spiritual journey of how do we return to a deeper sense of belonging in the natural world? And how do we cultivate that sense of love and connection in the more than human world and the natural world to then inspire action within our communities? And so one of Joanna Macy's books that I love is, is called Active Hope. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to maybe focus on that active part for a moment and see if, if there might be an invitation you'd like to offer our listeners of just one small, very concrete action that they can take today after listening to this podcast to cultivate that deeper sense of belonging in the natural world. Mm. Well, I already mentioned sit spot, so I'm going to recommend everyone sniff out their sit spot right after this podcast and see how that sits. But as far as the uh, act of hope, and thank you for mentioning Joanna Macy. Her work has been monumental in my life as an elder and an ecofeminist, and she's just brilliant. Uh, so shout out to, to Joanna. One of the, and I'm going to share this. This is actually a process from the work that reconnects, and I find it to be really helpful in my life, especially when hope might be dwindling. So for example, if I've been trying to work on getting plastic bag banned for five years and nothing's happening, which Joanna Macy's own history when she was trying to work with um, banning or eliminating nuclear power plants in her home area in California in which she, quote, failed each time. Um, There's this level sometimes of like, oh, no. And so always going back to gratitude. So a simple practice that I think can inspire hope is remembering why we're doing this in the first place. So Naming something you have gratitude for in this work, I think, is a simple and extremely powerful, with research, positive psychology evidence, uh, that can be extremely powerful. There's another practice, and it's known as like a praise walk. And so the idea is, is that as you're walking, you're just praising and noticing and just like uh, witnessing the, the beauty and the joy and the vibrance around you. So um, I did in my neighborhood the other day, and it was a little embarrassing because the invitation is to speak it out loud. 
And so like I would see this like blooming tulip and I'm like, look at you, tulip. You're so beautiful. Like you're just really just giving um, words to what you're seeing around you. Because any good relationship, you, you kind of don't want to ignore the beings around you. So I talk to them all the time. You've, and, got, you've yeah. got good background for that. The Jewish <laughs> tradition has this practice of blessing so many things. Blessed are you, Lord God of the universe, who, and then fill in the blank, who brings forth bread from the earth, who, um, you know, without whom we would be this. There's, there's always an occasion to praise and give thanks. I love it. And my thought is like doing it in a way that seems almost a little over the top. Um, it can, it's actually starts to feel really good. You can feel, it's almost like that idea if you, um, if you smile, it releases certain serotonin uh, chemicals into your body. It's, it's similar to that. Just a, just a few. Thank I have you. a whole lot of practices, so. I love that. Yeah, kind of closing that whole loop back to where we began the conversation about rewilding mental health of that idea that even in our own inner landscapes and our own psyches and as we move through the world that much like the ecosystems you were talking about earlier with the wolves being reintroduced, that there's this natural tendency towards diversity and all these different species cohabitating together. So I love that idea that even we're feeling anger and despair and fear that that can coexist with joy and gratitude and a sense of belonging, that all of those can be in our environment at one time and that they're ultimately connected. And so it seems like our, our journey is to figure out how they are. So it's complicated, but complicated is a good thing. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, I think it's a complex world. And I love we also mentioned a bit earlier with the forest bathing of in the, the woods, knowing all the trees are connected by those mycelium networks that are running for miles and miles beneath our feet. And so, you know, how do we, we move through our world with that sense of connection and belonging that's ultimately mysterious. And yet, if we begin to quiet our minds just even a little bit, we can begin to feel it more yeah. deeply. It's quite powerful. And it's, so to me, the most healing I've experienced and I was, you know, as a background with um, massage therapist and holistic health and mental health, it's it's quite profound. And I think that you named it and described it very well right there. Juniper, if you could point our listeners to some additional resources, first and foremost, Bridge Counseling and Wellness, how can they find you there? And maybe one other website or, or resource that would be a good place to start learning more about this. Absolutely. So our website at Bridge Counseling is www.bridgemindbody.com. And I do invite you to check out our website. And also, if you want to connect, uh, I love hearing people's stories of nature connection. Any questions, thoughts, concerns, if you're looking at getting into this work, um, I'd love to, to be a support and mentor for you. Uh, that being said, my first thought when you asked what was, if I could just say one website, because there's so many, it would be the work that reconnects Joanna Macy's website. There are so many resources in it. Joanna Macy offers her work for free. I mean, you can see almost everything on YouTube for free. There's tons of resources. So I would say that would be a great place to start. Well, I'm going to describe this as a, a wonderfully wild conversation, and I so much appreciate, we both appreciate, uh, Juniper, your, your good work in the world, and uh, hope may not be fashionable these days, but it gives me great hope uh, to hear about what you're doing and to know that these practices are just so democratically available to every single one of us, whether we're hiking the Appalachian Trail or sitting on our balcony overlooking a, a busy street that, that's there's wildness within and without that we can always access. So thank you for your good work, your time with us, 
And we, we are grateful for everything you do. And we wish you blessings. Thank you so much. Well said. And go hug a tree. You do not have to social distance with trees, so I've heard. You do not have to social distance with trees. I like that <laughs> tagline. <laughs> the Earth and Spirit podcast is a production of the Earth and Spirit Center, a nonprofit interfaith spirituality center in Louisville, Kentucky, devoted to cultivating a flourishing world through contemplative practice. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Calliopeia Foundation, whose mission is to reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality through grant-making, education, and media initiatives. Joe Brown is our audio engineer, Parker Bowling provides production help, and I'm your host, Kyle Kramer. To learn more about the Earth and Spirit Center, please visit our website, www.earthandspiritcenter.org. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org.